Do you guys want to grab a Bible? If you've got one, if not, the words will appear behind me. We're going to be in Acts 2, uh, verses 42 to 47 this morning. Uh, that's Acts 2, verses 42 to 47. And this is God's word. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. And we thank God for his word as it still speaks to us today. Don't worry. We haven't forgotten about the day of Pentecost, okay? I know we started in Acts 1 last week, and you're probably thinking, what the heck? We've just like skimmed past kind of pivotal part of the New Testament narrative. We will drop in on that in Pentecost Sunday, which is in a couple of weeks, but it felt kind of a bit daft to do it before Pentecost to then go back into it on Pentecost a few weeks later. So don't worry, we haven't forgotten. We will be digging into Pentecost in a few weeks. You're just gonna have to like work a bit kind of chronologically after it's happened today, okay? Because the series we're in is Church Alive. I'm not sure how it happened, uh, but some part of lockdown in the last year, right, it's been, it's been a roller coaster for all of us, but, you know, for me, it's turned me into some kind of emotional wreck, okay? I know all the, the actual emotional wrecks in this room are like, he's not an emotional wreck, but turned me into a wreck, okay? I knew I struggled to believe that. One of the sources of emotional outpourings in my life over the last year has been watching Elle, okay? Watching my daughter, watching her navigate in her own words and thoughts and the highs and lows of the last year, her kind of quiet moments, moments she articulates something really deep in her own little phrases. And most recently, it's been while singing at the very top of her lungs the soundtrack from Moana, okay, right? Like, I mean, there's one of those songs, okay, and Elle will be like off in the living room. You're kind of, you know, doing whatever around the house. And somewhere, okay, in her very loudest, like the best she can manage, wearing a dress, because Moana wears a dress, okay, she has to go and get a dress on every time she sings this song. She'll kind of run in, and at the top of her lungs, she'll go, I am Moana, like as loud as you can, right? You're welcome for that, by the way. You're welcome. Sorry, that's a double joke. You have to have seen Moana together. Anyway, right? The movie, okay? The movie Moana. Sorry if I'm about to, to ruin another movie for you, right? But if you know anything about it, it's about a Pacific Islander called Moana who answers the call of the ocean uh, to go and fulfill a seemingly impossible mission to restore the heart of Te Fiti, right? There's the synopsis. I'm not going to ruin it any more than that, okay? But a lot of the start of the movie is around this wrestling match between the call of the ocean, which is telling her she needs to go and do this, and her place as part of the tribe, her island, and her people. And the thing is that that whole idea of clan or tribe or people is kind of hard to relate to in the world in which we live today, isn't it? The idea of the place of a clan or a tribe or a people and its kind of sway or direction over your life is kind of hard to relate to in a world that has gone all in over individuality, hasn't it? 
Like what I say is what really matters. As in our identity, our boundaries, our priorities, our do's and our don'ts should be defined by what I say and what I feel, not by what our membership to any particular tribe, like for example a family or an upbringing says. I define me, not anyone else. But here's the thing. That wasn't how things always were. To a New Testament world, which is where we are right now as we dig into the book of Acts, okay? To people group or ethnic group or family group was what played the key role in what made you who you were. It was defining membership. It was formational membership. And I say that today because this, the Bible, this passage, this is our tribe as much as this is our tribe today. This is the place where we have defining membership. Above every other grouping, above every other clan, tribe, everything else, this is the defining membership of the New Testament church. And I guess the question is, how do we reflect on the church we read in here to the church we see in here? How do we reflect on how different they are, how different they feel, how different they look, how differently they function. How do we reflect on that? Because we're going to be spending a little while in the book of Acts. We're going to need to deal with that question. How do we reflect on it? And that was the hope of the Church Alive series, okay? Rick kicked us off last week. He was digging into that kind of first part in the Acts story in Acts 1 as we look at the general picture, okay? And the general picture, just to recap, is that Luke, the writer of the third gospel, was also the writer of the Acts, okay? And, and Luke, in, his, in the gospel, Luke, okay, he tracks the story of the life of Jesus, obviously. It's a, it's a gospel. And then in Acts, he tracks the story of the start of the life of the church, that bears Jesus' name, okay? And if you could only use one word, Acts is a really complex book, okay? But if you can only use one word to describe or understand Acts, it would probably be the word movement. It's the word movement. Everywhere you look in the book of Acts, the word movement aptly describes what is going on. That this church born out of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, historical person, historical figure, fans into flame by the gift of the Spirit, starts in Jerusalem and spreads to every corner of the earth. We're not here today, sitting in this place today, if what happens then doesn't reach here. And another way of seeing it is, is kind of this other narrative that's also going on where this Christian faith, which starts in the heart of Judaism, spreads even to the heart of the Roman Empire. It is the astonishing history of the church told in storied form by somebody who had been with Jesus. By someone who had been with Jesus. He then tells the start of the life of the church. And this first block that we're in, okay, over these next number of weeks, right? I want you to give us some grace over the next year or so, right? Acts is a big book. When I sat down to start trying to figure out what this series is going to look like, it totaled over 30 sessions. And everyone was like, no, you can't do 30 sessions. Everyone will be so bored of Acts, you can't do it, right? But then I have this other counter argument that's in me, which is like, we always do that with the big important books of the Bible. We go, well, if you can't break it down into six sessions with three points every week, then don't do it because everyone will get bored. You can't do it, right? So the point is we've broken it down into these little five session blocks, right? And we're going to try and pick them through the year as we try and dig into the story of the church. And the first block, the one we're in right now, 
is about what happened in Jerusalem. This is the church alive at home. This is the church alive at home. And I'm not sure about you, but I know that for many people, we can tend to read Acts like we read sections of the Old Testament. What do I say when I, what do I mean when I say that? Well, I mean that very often we can read it with the thought in our heads that it wasn't meant to set any sort of precedent for our lives today. Like when you read through huge swathes of Old Testament history, you're like, well, it's Old Testament. It's not New Testament. It's kind of, it's not meant to tell me how I'm meant to live today, is it? And with Acts, we can do exactly the same for very different reasons. Like stuff is so incredible, right? That it's, it's not meant to speak to how we live today, is it? I mean, could it? No way. And when we come at it that way, right, Acts tends to leave us responding in one of two ways, right? Either number one, we read passages like we've just read today and we beat ourselves up because our lives and our church look nothing like that. Or number two, we distance ourselves from it and say things like, well, that was for then. That was for a specific time. That's not for now, so we can't be expecting that, right? But here's the thing. Acts won't let us do either. Acts doesn't let us away with coming at it as a book with either of those two postures. Gordon Fee, one of the best minds on Acts, writes that one of the challenges as we read it is discerning what is meant to just describe what happened in the early church and what is meant to be the norm in every church. And for a start, okay, Luke is pretty clear about what Acts is not, okay? He's pretty clear about what he's not trying to do. He's not about biographies of key leaders, for example, right? That's pretty astonishing when the book is the Acts of the Apostles, and he doesn't actually tell you very much about the apostles, right? That's kind of incredible. He's not interested in telling you about how this new church should be organized either. So there's not loads of stuff about like, well, this is how you structure new churches as they expand all over the known world. He doesn't really do that. He doesn't really explore the growth that was going on in the church outside of the expansion from Jerusalem to Rome. There's tons of stuff going on elsewhere, and we read it in some of the other New Testament letters, but he's not really that interested in telling you that story either, and he doesn't particularly deal with specifics. For Luke, it's always about the big picture. So here we are. Here we are looking at the wonder of what happened in the Jerusalem church. And Luke never intended for it to be the model for every other church to follow, right? So first thing as you read that passage, don't worry. That was never intended to be the model for every church. Sections of Acts are about models, okay? And I know we love models, don't we? The church loves a model. If you just do this, roll it out, this is what will happen, right? We love models, right? But this wasn't intended to be a model, After all, as the church expands into the Gentile world, uh, church life was not described or expected to look like this, okay? This is a one-off in a way. This is the wonder of what happened in Jerusalem. It wasn't a model, but it was an example, an example of what happens when the church comes alive. And as we look today at the first church, right, I want us to see how in these short five verses that the church alive looks like two things. It looks like a loving church and it looks like a living church. The first thing is it was a loving church. These are verses 43 to 45. Everyone was filled with awe 
at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles, all the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. A number of years ago, I traveled to Kenya on a short-term mission trip uh, as part of a project that our church was supporting. We, were, we traveled to Mombasa and then on from there into other parts of Kenya. And while we were out there, we were talking uh, with the missionary who had started the project, okay? And he was kind of, we were just like, just tell us the story about like what's been going on here and all of that, because it was, it was incredible, right? And so he started to tell us about what had been going on. And he was talking about one of the early conversations whenever he arrived, all right? And, and over the years before we got there, they'd done some incredible things. They'd done, firstly, irrigation projects. The missionary had been a farmer. Uh, and so when he got there, he kind of taught them how to plant and grow and water things. It's obviously a very arid environment. And so they were able to grow and sell things and all of that. It was incredible. And then the next thing they'd done was they'd built a small school. And then they'd built a small medical facility. It was amazing. But the big dream, right, was a bridge because the river was a serious problem, right? We are in the middle of nowhere, okay? Like when I say the middle of nowhere, we were just outside Savo National Park, which is a national park the size of Wales, okay? So nobody lives from where they are to the other side of Wales, basically, right? It's just animals and all of that. It's incredible, right? And the astonishing thing was they built this small school for this small group of people that lived there in this small medical facility, and just people started arriving, like walking for days to get there, right? But the river was a problem. And the locals had brought him down to the river to tell him about how all these people were coming from miles uh, to, to come to school or to bring their sick to the medical facility. And to get there, they had to cross the river. And they described that the biggest problem with the river was the crocodiles, Right? This is Kenya, right? So you're in a whole other world than here, right? The biggest problem is the crocodiles. And they had taken many people over the time that those facilities had existed. And then they show them, okay, they're on this side of the river. And they show them where we think we could build a bridge here. This is where we think you could put foundations down so that we can build a bridge, right? And then they're like, now, if you would just follow me to the other side of the river, we're going to show you where we're going to build them there. That's right. The other side of Crocodile Death River, Right? And they're just like, all of a sudden, they just start wading across the river. And he's, he's kind of like, been like, mm-hmm, yep, this project sounds great. And then they start wading. And he's like, wait a second. That's Crocodile Death River. I'm definitely going to die if I go in there, given all that you've just told me. And Derek said that looking back, he can't quite believe he did it. But he realized in that moment that if he was ever going to gain their trust and was ever going to have them see him as one of them and on their side, then he was going to need to get into the water and wade across. So he did. The thing was, that was the price of admission, wasn't it? The price of admission into trust and acceptance and them seeing that he was there truly for them, not just there to stand on high or at a distance, but actually there to be one of them and to help them and to see them where they were. That was the price of admission was, you got to get in the water and get across the river. And I say that today because I think that this passage in Acts 2 is one where we read it very often. And read that line. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. And are like, what? Is that the price of admission into the church, right? We read it and we're like, holy smokes. Like, is that what it costs? Is that what it takes? Well, it turns out actually, no. You see, to most believers, these are disturbing verses. They should be disturbing verses, right? Because that is a high bar. 
And they should lead us to ask questions like, should we live this way? Could I live this way? Would I live this way? The thing is that we have to remember again that this is an example and not a model. Jesus never forbade his followers from having private property, okay? So your houses are safe for now, right? And whilst we have examples in his teachings, right? Examples of things like the rich young ruler where he says, you know, go away and sell everything you have and then come back and follow me. That, that is not kind of his general line. It's more about the big picture than the specifics most of the time. Even though in verse 45, for example, Luke depicts them selling property to give to those who have need. In verse 46, they're breaking bread in homes. So clearly, they haven't all sold their homes, right? And furthermore, in verse 45, it's a bit more technical at this point. The verbs for selling and giving were in an imperfect tense. In other words, that means they were occasional and in response to specific needs. They weren't once and for all actions. As the church spreads throughout the Gentile world, right? We don't see giving like this as something that all of the church was held up to. It's not the standard, right? But that doesn't mean that it's not important. That doesn't mean that it's not important. You see, it's really easy to read things and think, let me, thank goodness he's let me off the hook there, right? I mean, I was just about getting ready to say, well, I don't know if I could give up this or that or whatever, right? He's let me off the hook there. No, we haven't doesn't mean that it's not important. See, it says this in verse 42. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship. Fellowship, right? The word for fellowship is this word, koinonia, okay? You've probably heard it before if you've been around church. Lots of uh, good writing has happened on the term koinonia before, right? But it's actually better translated as common life or life together, okay? Fellowship is good, but common life is maybe the easiest way that we can get our heads around it. And it's better to see it that way because koinonia was a two-way thing, right? It wasn't just a one-way thing. On one level, we all share in God himself, don't we? One of the things that we have fellowship in together is the God that we're here to worship, each of you with your individual relationships with God, but we share in him together. Our life, our way of living, and our understanding of the world is shaped by our relationship with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and we all share in him and his purposes in the world, okay? In some ways, you could think of that as what we share in, because we share in something together, don't we? But then on another level, we share our lives together. What we give and what we receive from one another. That line, all the believers were together, had everything in common, sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Think of this as what we share out. Koinonia is formed by what we share in and what we share out and in the New Testament, there's this other word, okay? And it's the word koinonikos, all right? It's obviously from the same family as koinonia. It comes from the same root, okay? But what does it mean? It means generous. It means generous. We read koinonia here. But throughout the New Testament, we read this term, koinonikos. And now we're really getting to the heart of what Luke is getting at. This is the big picture and not the specifics of exactly what we need to give away and exactly what we hold on to and exactly when we do it. It's life lived generously together. It's generous. Our life together is generous in its posture. 
If we're going to do life together, then it needs to be generous. The problem is, though, that we take a look at the picture and we respond by saying things, if not outwardly, definitely inwardly. Yeah, that's great, but that's just not practical, is it? I mean, just giving everything away, that's, I mean, I got rent, how are we going to, you know, how are we going to do that? Mortgage company will come for me. That's just, it's just not practical, is it? Not in the day and age in which we live today. I mean, that might work back then, but like, no, that's just, no, nah, that's just not practical. The thing is, though, right? It's hardly any more practical or any easier then than it is now to sell everything you have and give it to those in need, right? It's not like selling everything you have and giving it to other people has been practical in any generation or culture, right? And if we're asking questions about practicality, then we're asking the wrong questions. The question is really, as Jenning puts it, what must it have been like to feel the powerful pull of the life of our Savior? And what energy did it take to resist the Holy Spirit, to slow down this pull enough to withhold themselves and their possessions from divine desire? It was love. How do I know that? Because only love acts like this. Anyone who's ever been in love, right, knows that you aren't asking questions about what is practical when you fall in love, right? It's not, you're not kind of sitting down and going, well, practically speaking, we would be a good match, you know? Practically, their nose is a nice shape. You know, that, that's not what happens, right? You fall in love with someone. You just are, and there's a point where you know that it would take more energy to slow this thing down or stop it than it does just to give yourself to it. Confession, I told Joy I loved her after two weeks, right? I know you're like, what a saddo, right? What an absolute saddo, right? The thing is, though, it's not because I deal out words of affirmation readily. If you also know me, you know that words of affirmation are not my strong suit, right? It's, it's, just, it's just not really something that I do an awful lot, right? I'm not usually outspoken in that way, right? I've been in a long-term relationship before that. It had ended badly. I was hurt. So I was like very wary of getting into a relationship with anyone at the time. But all I knew was that I met this girl and I loved her. And I couldn't have slowed it down if I tried. And listen to people on their wedding day, all right? Vow to give everything they have and everything they are to the other half. All I have is yours. All their past, all their possessions, all their good, all their bad choices in history, all their debts if they've got them, all of their bodies, all of their hopes, and give them to another person. And now we're getting close to what is happening here. Only love could do that. Only love. And as Willie James Jennings writes, such love does not play fair. And then it hadn't played fair for them, had it? And such love hasn't played fair for us either. Whenever we think about Jesus and we think about our relationship with him, it wasn't about practicalities. It wasn't about what was fair. It wasn't about what we deserved because we got infinitely more than we deserved. And in the end, the Jerusalem church, like this church, had known a love like this when they followed Jesus. I love how Eugene Peterson translates Romans 5. This is how he writes it. Christ arrives right on time to make this happen. He didn't and doesn't wait for us 
to get ready. He presented himself for the sacrificial death and we were far too weak and rebellious to do anything to get ourselves ready. And even if we hadn't been so weak, we wouldn't have known what to do anyway. We can understand someone dying for a person worth dying for and we can understand how someone good and noble could inspire us to selfless sacrifice. But God put his love on the line for us by offering his son in sacrificial death while we were of no use whatever to him. It's not about practicality. And if we're asking questions about the practicality of our membership of this community, then we are asking the wrong questions. It's about love and what happens when we fall in love, that we give all that we have. And we know it would take more energy to stop it or slow it down than it does to simply let go. The first church was a loving church, full of a life lived generously together. Not a model, but an example. Don't we yearn for an example like that? But secondly, it was a living church. It was a living church. These are verses 42 and 43 and then 46 and 7. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. I have been in Presbyterian churches most of my life. And one of the things that always astonishes me in worship is the distance between the words that we're singing and the facial expressions and body language of the people in the room, right? It seems like a very great distance, okay? You know, like when it comes to sing songs about joy, you know, so that classic hymn, when Christ shall come with shout of acclamation, what joy shall fill my heart? And every row in the church is like, when Christ shall come. They also do this, Jimmy and uh, Noobs and I quite often like to do like Presbyterian ruining of songs, okay? Presbyterians are very rigid. They don't get like lilts in songs, so it has to be, when Christ shall come with shout of acclamation. There's no like, you know, there's no movement in Presbyterians. We're rigid people, right? I don't get it. Like it astonishes me to sing about love and joy and being filled up and so on and look like this. At the front, all to Jesus I surrender, all to him I freely give, except I'm not taking my hands out of my pockets, Jesus. I'm definitely not doing it. I'm gonna give you anything but not my hands out of my pockets this morning. What gives? What's that about? And I'm joking about it, but here's the thing. For the first church, church alive meant alive. And there was no doubt about the life that was in it. There was no doubt that something had happened in these people and it was alive. That life was expressed in two directions, right? Whenever we look at it in these verses, the church that had come alive, it was being expressed in two ways, right? On the inside, first of all, it was a learning church, right? In the aftermath of Pentecost, okay, the first evidence of the Spirit's presence working in the church in Jerusalem was how they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. That's the first words in verse 42. It was a learning church, right? 
And I, I think we can often think of the power of the Spirit being poured out. When you read the account of Pentecost, it's all a bit weird, right? Tongues of flame and different languages and all sorts of stuff going on. I think you can read that and think about you know, that happening and the, the strange experiences believers were having and think that they were all having some sort of holy or ethereal kind of experience when the truth is that what they were devoting themselves to was not that but the apostles' teaching. It was a learning church, the first church was learning. And we like to see it so often, we see it so often in the life of Jesus too, that the miracles accompanied the teachings. So often when you read the Gospels, right, it'll talk about something incredible happening, and the onlookers will say they were astonished at his teaching. Whenever the Bible account doesn't give us any idea that he taught anything at all, he just performed a miracle. Other times he will teach, and we get the teaching, and miracles just happen on the side. Teaching and miracles came together, right? The first church didn't have to choose whether to be a Bible church or a spirit church. It was both. Teaching and miracles were happening at the same time. They came together as God's word was taught and people learned to live under it. It was a learning church. Next thing it was, it was a worshiping church. Inwardly, it was a worshiping church. They broke bread together in homes, but also they continued to go to the temple. See, these were converts from Judaism, right? They had been Jewish people. They had, they had rituals and a whole life around the temple that kind of formed the, the annual calendar, right? If you know anything about um, the, the kind of Jewish calendar of that year, like that was the thing, right? It wasn't school calendars like we have now. It was the Jewish calendar of festivals and different things that they went to, right? And they had all come under the grace of Jesus, and yet they continued to go to the temple. They didn't just throw out all of that temple experience. They didn't throw it away. Though it's likely now they didn't continue to take part in the sacrificial stuff because they understood Jesus as the sacrificial lamb. But they still probably went for prayer and for festival. This was worship that embraced the traditional of the temple and the spontaneous of their homes. And it was worship that embraced joy and awe as well. That's what these verses say. Verse 43, everyone was filled with awe, lived alongside. Verse 46, they broke bread in their homes, ate together with glad and sincere hearts. Awe and joy. Since God had sent Jesus, and now he had sent the Spirit, they had plenty reason to be joyful. And at the same time, as that Spirit had been poured out, God had visited their city. He was in their midst and everyone knew it, and they knew they needed to bow down in response. It embraced the traditional, and embraced the, the spontaneous. It embraced awe, and it embraced joy. This was a worshiping church, and in the church alive, worship is still the place of joy and awe, where love poured out for us results in joy pouring out from us, where the Spirit's move within us results in a sense of awe of just who God is and what He's done. This was a living church on the inside, but also it was a living church on the outside. For it's impossible to read this section without being drawn to that last verse. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Whilst inwardly, the first church looked like loving one another, learning and worship, worship, community and witness, if you will. Outwardly, they were a place 
of witness. And in just one verse, right, this one verse, we learn three things about what that witness looked like. The first is this, God did it. The Lord added to their number. God did it. They didn't, they didn't do it. It wasn't about what they did. It was God's work. Sometimes I think we can almost be triumphalistic about people coming to the Lord, can't we? About the one more hand kind of mentality. Look how great we are. One more hand. Look at all these people that we're bringing to faith in the Lord. We haven't ever saved anyone. Jesus Christ has. God did it. I was talking to Linda about Alpha just before church, asking her how it's going. We're doing Alpha online at the minute. Maybe some of you are on that course. I don't know. But anyway, Alpha is happening online right now. Linda is kind of uh, helping head that up for us as a church. I asked her how it was going, and Linda's exact response was, it's amazing. I don't do anything. God just does the stuff. And I'm like, that's incredible. And that's what they knew too. First thing is that God does it. Second thing is that people coming to faith and joining the church is a big deal, right? In other words, making converts wasn't enough, isn't enough, will never be enough. It wasn't the goal. Discipleship was. And so they came to faith and they came to belong to a community straight away. By the way, the same community we're describing here, okay? They came to faith, not knowing Jesus, and then they end up in a community that was selling all they had and giving to one another straight away, right? Like talk about jumping in at the deep end, but that's what they did. This is the first church. And it's already demonstrating that the Bible doesn't communicate anything about solitary believing. Where faith and your place in the church come together. Here's the thing, if you are watching us today from home, or you're listening at some point this week or catching up at this and whatever time suits you, or you're here today and forever, for whatever reason you find yourself believing but not belonging to a church, then I just want to encourage you to plug in. Whoever you are, wherever you are, the first church and every church knows nothing about solitary believing. Plug in. Plug in. Here or wherever home is, plug in. Especially right now in a time of such disconnection, right? I get that being at home can be easier. I get it. We get two kids here every week and it's like a titanic effort just to get them here and stop them from killing each other and other people or Hannah Newburn as she runs around after Elle for about 45 minutes before church every Sunday, right? I get that it's hard, right? I get that at home with coffee and your kids vegging out in front of an iPad while you watch church, I get that it's easier than being here. I get that being around people is awkward as it is, right? Because people are awkward. I get it. I get it. But to be part of a living church, it requires your presence and it requires your participation. You need to belong. And faith and belonging come hand in hand for the first church. God did it. Faith and belonging happened immediately. And thirdly, it happened daily. It wasn't a program, it wasn't an activity, it was the ongoing outworking of the Spirit alive through their life together. This was a living church, a place where on the inside and on the outside, life with Jesus was giving shape to the life 
of Jesus. Their life with Jesus was giving shape to the life of Jesus. People looked at this place and they saw Jesus and saw what he was doing in their lives. You see, the thing is that we sit here now, right? And we read and we look on and we call it the church, right? But we can't help but bring our own ideas of what the church is meant to be and what it's meant to look like into the equation because we've had some experience of the church now in our time and in our culture, right? Whatever that has looked like. We can't help but look at what's happening here and go, well, that's what the church is and that's what the church looked like. But what we're reading here actually is the picture of life stories and life projects, plans and purposes, people's destinations where they thought they were going, pasts and baggage and brokenness and all of the stuff that these individuals were carrying, being intercepted, changed, transformed and propelled in a new direction by a whole new and living way. That's what the church is. That should bring its concern to us not our ideas of the church to this. Don't you long for a church like that? It's not a model, but it is an example. I spent some time with a leader uh, in a church of England, uh, church this last week online, and he was saying that he reckons that COVID and lockdown and all, that is, all that's happened over the last year has probably caused about 10 years of decline to happen in one year. When he talks to leaders around the Church of England, they think that it's probably 10 years in one. And I get that everywhere we look, right, the signs around the church are of decline. There's that report in America over the last month that just depicted devastating decline, that actually evangelical Christians in America now make up less than 50%. I think it was like 47% of the population. It's the first time in history since records began in America where Christianity is in the minority in that country. And whether it's America, it's the wider UK, or it's right here in Belfast, right? Just look around. It's not hard to see that decline is everywhere, right? Does it look like a church alive? I don't say that smugly or glibly. I don't say that in a mean or a finger-pointing way. But does it look like a church alive? And I also get that the moment that we're in isn't one that tends to be full of boldness and expectation, is it? Except if it's about the pub opening up over the weekend. Then everyone's bold and full of expectation, right? I get that it's a moment that's not exactly full of wildest dreams and boldness and great expectations and a radical outlook at the positive prospects of the church in Northern Ireland right now, right? I get it. In my low points, I feel exactly the same. And then, very often, I will be haunted by something that I said in a preach I gave in the church here the day we opened this place up, right? It's a bizarre thing to be haunted by your own words. I feel like Scrooge or something, you know, in a Christmas carol, right? But on that day when we received the building and, and all of, you know, kind of life was sunny in the sense that we were looking forward with expectation and hopes and dreams and belief that Jesus wanted to do something in Belfast, right? I said on that day, we aren't here to fill this place up with people, but I believe we're here to fill this city up with life. And I still believe that today. 
pandemic or no pandemic, church decline or no church decline, whether there was still only 20 of you here or the awful lot more of you that there are here today, downstairs in the kids' space and joining us online, I still believe that, not just because I believe it was what God placed on my heart, but because I'm reading about it right here in Acts 2 in the form of a loving church and the form of a living church. I just want to ask today, will you give yourself again to believe that as broken as we are and as failing as we are and as weak as we are and as small as we are, frankly, as unlike Jesus as we are at times, will you give yourself to believe that we might trust again? that there is nothing that can hinder the forward movement of the church of Jesus Christ through the work of the Holy Spirit demonstrated in the life of the church alive in this generation. Will you give yourself to that again? To believe that it's possible. To believe that it's possible that with this small group of people and every other small group of believers around the city this morning, we might see this city turned upside down with the hope and the life and the good and the grace and the redemption and the mercy of Jesus. Will you give yourself to believe in that again? I love this line from Tim Keller. This is what he writes. Everything is unprecedented once. Up until 1900, there had never been a fast-growing revival in a non-Western pre-Christian country. Then, there was the Korean Presbyterian revival, Presbyterian revival, in 19... I bet you they weren't boring then. Uh, the Presbyterian revival in 1907, and the East African Anglican, even the Anglicans had revival in the 1930s. There was never a renewal movement of monasticism until there was. There was never a reformation until there was. There was never anything like a great awakening until there was. There has never been a fast-growing revival in a post-Christian secular society. But every great new thing is unprecedented until it happens. Jesus said, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. It's Matthew 16. There's no reason to believe this promise has an expiration date. Will you believe again that even in the decline that we see, even in the post-Christian secular world in which we are now living in, even as churches close their doors around the city center, even as we may feel very much like we're in the minority in our workplaces, in our family environments, in our friendship circles, even though we may feel that pressing down heavily on us, will you believe that that which is unprecedented is just waiting to happen right here? in Belfast as it is in heaven.